Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, and blizzakazoo, Turns out we have a podcast to record. <laughs> oh, you could have totally killed it in a production of this somehow, this movie that we're talking about, if it became a stage production, but it didn't. But it should, just so you can star in it, I think. That's what should happen. Ramaladang, Ramaladee. Let's find out about the 5,000 fingers of Dr. T. Now, now you're doing some sort of a New York Jewish lady in there, I think, as well. But it's yeah, working. It did I'm get very Jewish. It. I'm all for it. Yeah. So. Yeah, you know, wouldn't have been worse than the interpretation of the villain in this. Oh, well, we're, we're going to have some disagreement here coming up. But uh, what's going on here in this season of Awesome Movie Year? We're talking about the films of 1953. And in this episode, we are talking about the year's big flop, and that is The 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T, the one and only live-action big-screen effort from Dr. Seuss, which was such a failure that he swore off working in the movies for the rest of his life. And, uh, you know, what what other mark of a failure? That's That's a pretty big mark of failure right there, I think. Yeah, and obviously he never went on to do anything of note. So, <laughs> well, take that, Geisel. Yeah, I mean, not not in the <laughs> movies, certainly, or at least not until after he died, and then they started making movies based on his books. But in his well, in his lifetime, he did. He had already won two Oscars: one for best short film and one for animating a documentary. Right? Yeah, uh, the the short film Gerald McBoing Boing. Uh, which was the Oscar winner for best animated short film in, I think it was 1950. And the success of that kind of led to the green light for this film, I think. So yeah, he'd had a promising start, but then he was like, nope, done, over, not happening anymore. But we all knew from our childhood, like the iconic, you know, you're a mean one, Mr. Grinch. Yes. Like, yes. it's not like he... Beyond the books, it's not like he didn't have a presence in our world of pop culture. Oh, absolutely. He had all of those TV specials, which were very successful. And I would imagine maybe he had a greater level of control over those that he felt like he didn't have here. But certainly nothing live action uh, until until long after he died. And this this maybe this was why. And it did not do well. I We're calling it a flop. And I'm trusting uh, Wikipedia and other citations that it did poorly at the box office. I don't know the exact number, though. Um, supposedly, the budget was $2.75 million, which is a pretty decent-sized budget for a movie from 1953, and so probably it had to make a decent amount of money in order to succeed, and it did not. Supposedly, there were there were walkouts at test screenings. It was, it was very heavily re-edited after early screenings. There were nine musical numbers out of the original 20 that were cut from this and that no longer exist. As far as I could tell, they're not even available as deleted scenes or anything like that. The The music is available on the soundtrack, but the actual footage is no longer there. So it was already kind of hobbled by the time it reached uh, a wide audience. Yeah, it, it does not have the magic of many Dr. Seuss projects, Josh. Not quite, although I think it has some magic. I, I have this feeling that Jason is is going to trash this up and down. And and many people agreed at the time. I think this is a movie that we could have maybe even put in our cult classic section for this season because it has certainly gained a, a bigger, better reputation over time. And there are people who really like it. And, and I feel like 
you read about some of these things that were cut off early in the process, whether that was these musical numbers that were actually shot and that were cut out or whatever script that Dr. Seuss originally came up with, supposedly 1,200 pages he wrote for this script initially. And obviously no one wants to see the 1,200 page version, but surely there were a lot of other strange, interesting detours that probably had to get cut out by Hollywood producers in order to make this into a family-friendly mainstream film, which is what they would have wanted. Well, Josh, so to go back, it was re-released in 1958 with more cuts under the title Crazy Music, right? So um, they did give it another try and it failed there. And as for this 1,200-page script, it was like page three, zimmy-limmy-flap, page four, bibby-dibby-dap, you know, so of course it's 1,200 pages, the Dr. Seuss script, so. Yeah, yeah, that's just a very effective uh, impersonation of Dr. Seuss there. And also, I feel like cutting more out of this movie is not the way to make it better. Like, it doesn't surprise me that a re-release in 1958 didn't succeed when they made it shorter. Like, it's already feels like it's been hacked up in a lot of ways, I feel like. It, like I said, it doesn't seem to have any of the whimsy that we come to um, appreciate with Dr. Seuss. Yeah, I think it has enough of it. It not, I mean, maybe, maybe not enough, but a sufficient amount that it's mildly amusing for, from my perspective. And just the fact that in 1953, they aimed to translate the style of Dr. Seuss to live action, which is something they didn't work on again until so much late, nearly 50 years later with all the different advances in special effects. And, and, you know, I think they do, they do what they can with it here with set design and costumes and stuff. Well, I think you're a sucker, Josh. You're just going to keep pushing everything on us from 1953 as this landmark year to tell us why it's so good because you want us to keep doing these old seasons. And uh, if they all suck, Josh, it's all going to be 2015 on from now on. Awesome movie year, the current year. <laughs> Listen to our most recent episode, one episode ago, when we all agreed the movie from 1953 was good. And probably the next one, too. <laughs> yeah, but for now, I mean, I don't, I don't 100% disagree with you. This is not a great movie. And I mean, jumping ahead, the first time I saw this movie... Um, a few years ago, I was like, wow, what a cool, weird Dr. Seuss cult classic. That's got to be amazing. And I was really underwhelmed with it. And this time, I think with lower expectations, I had a little more fun with it. But I'm not going to argue that it's a great movie or that it's a, a brilliant lost classic or anything like that. I think it's an unrealized opportunity to make this kind of thing out of Dr. Seuss that they probably just didn't have the resources for at the time. And it should be noted, Stanley Kramer, legendary director and producer, produced this film and supposedly uh, directed a good bunch of it without, you know, having it under his name. And it's it's interesting that you have such uh, mega forces here and that it just didn't come together. Right. I mean, we know Dr. Seuss is this towering figure of children's books, but by 1953, he was still like a huge deal. Yeah. So you're right. There are these big figures. This was something that had a lot of expectations. And that may have been part of the problem that there were too many conflicting ideas of what it should be. So it did get an Oscar nomination for best original score. And I, I think the music is some of the best stuff that's going on here. Dr. Seuss also did write the song lyrics. Um, so I, you know, that's a, that's a deserved nomination. I think I agree. I like the music. Yeah. I, I don't know why they cut nine of those. And, um, 
it had some catchy tunes. I think the whole thing could have been a musical and I'd have been fine. With yeah, it. I agree. I felt like there's long stretches where I was like, couldn't we get another song in here? I, well, I guess we could have, but we didn't. Um, so critics at the time were seemingly mixed on it. Uh, our buddy Bosley Crowther in the New York Times was not a fan. By the way, Bosley Crowther sounds like a Dr. Seuss villain. He does. And he yeah. has, he could have been because <laughs> he has a very negative take on this film. He says, this strange and confused fabrication of the dreams of a 10-year-old boy who is staging a psychic rebellion against his male piano teacher's tyranny is not only abstruse in its symbols and in its vast elaboration of reveries, but also dismally lacking in the humor or the enchantment such an item should contain. There is plenty of fancy image making along the line of current comic strips, and plenty of loose suggestion of wishful thinking along the line of Freud. Granting the good intentions of Dr. Seuss and co-writer Alan Scott, the consequence of their effort is a ponderously literate affair, pictorially potential, but devoid of sense or suspense. You know, in my lifetime, Josh, I don't often want to agree with Bosley Crowder over Dr. Seuss, right. but uh, we've come to that point in the road here, haven't we? I think we have. Yeah, it seems like he's uh, on your wavelength for, on this one. Well, I I agree. There was a lot of just missteps, mispotential, as you said, and um, just misses here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, mispotential, I think, but uh, there's still some some slight hits, I guess. So. Uh, other critics were less uh, negative or actually uh, quite positive, although it seems like they were maybe applying lower standards. I don't. Roy Ringer in the LA Daily News said, Columbia Pictures and Stanley Kramer can be proud of his production of The 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T, a highly original musical that successfully defies the Hollywood formula. A work of pure imagination, this Technicolor fantasy hasn't a single major star in its cast, and for this reason may suffer at the box office. But our advice is that you treat the entire family to Dr. T. If the picture is lacking in celebrities, it has full measure of whimsy and charm and surprise. Mm, no whimsy, no charm, no surprise. Moving on. Were you not surprised by anything in this movie just because it was kind of weird? I wasn't surprised at all. The only thing I was surprised about, which I found to be a negative. Yeah was that the villain had nothing redeeming going for him in that like if you look at something like um the reason the grinch is so successful right is because he comes around this villain is just the just the knob job all the way through and there nothing else comes of it i guess i mean you could argue that i mean the idea here is that this is all sort of a dream of of this little boy bart who hates taking piano lessons and he casts his piano teacher is this horrible villain. So, I mean, you could say that this isn't really like, he isn't even really like a person who would have some sort of character arc or whatever. He's just the projection of this kid's idea of this supposedly tyrannical teacher. I mean, you know, in the same way that, that uh, you know, the Grinch sees the magic of Christmas, didn't you want the villain here to see the magic of other instruments? Oh, now I hear the trumpet come in and the drums and the violin, and they all sound so good together with the piano. Why, yes, a symphony is exactly what this town needs. See, but 
that's not what the kid wants anyway. The kid doesn't give a shit about any instruments. He just wants to go outside and yeah. like, play stickball or something. I mean, the, the kid calls the, the plumber who he's met like three times in his life, dad. He's got other problems going around. <laughs> hey, Pop. You mean me? Yeah, Pop. You're my dad, right? I fixed your pipes once. Okay, Pop, I'll show you my homework when it's done. Like, what? He wants to go fishing. He needs a male role model in his life. This kid is adrift, and we are seeing yeah. his... You need a male role model in your life. Oh, yeah. Are you volunteering <laughs> for that one? I, I, I don't think that would you. end up well. Yeah. Yeah. That probably wouldn't be the best choice, John. No, so. I mean, this is... The whole movie is... And, and you know, we're talking about, like, the Freudian aspects of it, as mentioned in this review. Like... I, I would imagine that that original draft probably has a lot more psychological probing of this character. And that's what we're essentially getting is a glimpse into this messed up 10 year old kid's psyche. You're saying that they cut all the stuff where Bart wants to fuck his mom. Bart clearly wants to fuck his mom using the plumber as a proxy. <laughs> yes. Come on. Yeah. Hey, Dave, do you think your dad's uh, available to be Josh's male role model? <laughs> Another bad choice. Lots of bad choices for Josh. I, I'm a lost cause here, Jason. I think it's it's over for me already. Well, maybe if you know Rich and you, you know, it's like what they say, like you know, two uh, two two wrongs make a right. Yeah, exactly. That's where I'm going with it. So, you know, like if you see how low you can descend, maybe you'll turn the corner real fast. All so. right. Well, um, let's move on to. <laughs> Another review, someone who, another person who disagrees with you, Jason, Jay Carmody in the Washington Evening Star said, people who've been clamoring for a, quote, different movie will find it starting today. It is called The 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T, and its producer is Stanley Kramer. Kramer may be the only movie maker alive who would venture to see film material in the writing and drawing of Dr. Seuss, but this is what he has done in this film. What he has pounced upon with his taste for the unusual is a satirical musical comedy fantasy. It is wonderful in the moments when it comes off, at least different in those passages when it lapses into bumbling. The 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T represents the imagination running riot, and as everybody knows, riots invariably get somewhat out of hand. This one is no exception to that rule, despite its numerous other exceptional aspects. What are those aspects? Uh, the charm and the whimsy, etc. I don't know. I didn't. Those are all missing, though. I mean, he thinks it's obviously this guy doesn't agree. He thinks it's satirical and fantastical. And, uh, you know, that's that's I think that stuff is you may think it doesn't work for you, but you can't say they're not at least presenting you with something whimsical. Uh, I found so little whimsy in here, Josh. You know, it's... <laughs> you're the Grinch this time. I'm usually the Grinch, but now you're the Grinch. I'll take it. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I assume you never saw this one before then. No, I had never seen it, but how fascinating does it sound? Uh, the only movie Dr. Seuss ever wrote, the musical, it's set in this uh, phantasmagorical world of imagination. Sounds like it should all work. Stanley Kramer coming off of Inherit the Wind, yeah, that's Judgment at Nuremberg clearly the man for this job yeah so, that's when you although although in his defense i mean you know stanley kramer it's a mad bad 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 world he, he can do this type of stuff true he's versatile yeah and uh we should say roy roland is the actual credited director here although as you pointed out supposedly stanley kramer ghost directed some of it um so yeah as i said i did see it a few years ago 
was not as hard on it as you are then, but was a little underwhelmed. I think this time I was a bit more forgiving and found some charming aspects to it. But I don't love it. It's not a great movie. It's an interesting failure. I I, I agree with you there. So was so did you just was this one you just like had heard about or yeah because I mean, it's a very random kind of film to pick yeah to I don't know why exactly I mean it was just something that was in my good old Netflix DVD queue that popped up one time because I I mean it's it's a known as as a kind of a cult oddity and of course Dr Seuss is still super famous and his involvement of in it, in it is known and. I don't know. It just intrigued me for whatever reason. And it was in a list of uh, all these movies that I was trying to check out. Yeah, Josh, you you did bring up one thing about how many reviews didn't like it. It failed. But like it does have uh, that reassessment that we always have been talking about on so many movies where it's got a really big following. Yeah. And I think that would have been the reason that nowadays it has a much more positive reputation, even though Seuss never like all the way until his death, I think was down on it and said negative things about it and left it out of his autobiography or whatever. But, but now, you know, if you look at like Letterboxd or whatever, there's a lot of positive reviews. And I think people have certainly reevaluated this in a, in a more positive light. So that's probably one of the reasons that I was curious to check it out. And I'm not fully on board with that, but I can see some of it. So Dave, had you ever watched this one? I had never seen it. I'd never heard of it. And you could now count me as a member of that cult. Oh, right. <laughs> I loved it. We're going to fight the battle here, maybe, between Dave and Jason. Yeah. Josh. Yeah. Dr. Seuss called the film a debaculous fiasco. What does I, he know? I like that Dr. Seuss's insult of his own film is a Dr. Seussian phrase. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> Hollywood is not suited for me and I am not suited for it, he once said. Yeah. And I mean, that that is not surprising given I think that happens to a lot of people who are solo creators like this. Uh, you know, he makes a, he writes a book and he draws the pictures and he's in full control over it. And you come especially to a live action movie and suddenly there's all these other factors and all these other people involved and it's not the right venue for him probably. Uh, so is there anything else on the background of this film that you want to talk about, Jason? Josh, you're a debaculous fiasco. Man, you're just really... I didn't even like... I just said a couple nice things about this film, and you're just jumping all over me. Well, I got... I'm just not a fan of this one, Josh, and it's put me in a mood where the only thing that might cheer me up is some green eggs and ham. All right. Well, there's no green eggs and ham in this, but, you know, there, there are some elsewhere in Seuss. So I guess we'll come back then in a moment and talk more of our general thoughts on the 5,000 fingers of Dr. T. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1953, we are talking about the flop of the year, the Dr. Seuss vision, the 5,000 fingers of Dr. T, and Jason hated it. So why do you hate fun and children, Jason? Oh, yeah, Josh. I'm the one on the, the podcast. So I'm saying our roles are reversed here in this episode. Well, for one thing, as I said, I, I, I mean, dude, you know, we're going to have to start a new category for 1953's giant scene eaters or something, because, uh, you know, talk about Caligula in the robe, right? Uh, well, our friend here, the bad guy played by uh, Snaggletooth, right? Or Snagglepuss, is that who played him over here? Snidely Whiplash. Yeah. Snidely Whiplash played him. What was the actor's it's name? Hans, there, Hans Conried is the actor's name. Yeah, he, uh, he, I get that he's treating it like a live action cartoon, but just it just felt like there was no 
real emotion behind anything he said. He was just going so big for all of it for no reason. I found him to be quite annoying. I didn't think any performance worked. Meanwhile, the mom who Bart wants to fuck, like, I mean, if you're going to defend someone from wanting to fuck their mom, like, hopefully the mom's a little more interesting than she is, right? Right, Josh? You got to give me that one, right? I mean, yeah, the mom <laughs> character is a bit bland. I, I think I will say again that all of this is meant to be filtered through the perspective of this 10-year-old boy who is probably... But if he wants to fuck her, then he would think that she'd be interesting, I right? mean... I don't know that really the movie is intending to show you that. There's some subtext there, but but most 10-year-old boys aren't interested in the interpersonal lives of their mothers, right? And so she's just a symbol, really, just like the plumber who he wishes would be his dad is kind of a symbol. And so is the piano teacher who he sees as some sort of obstacle to his fulfillment being able to skip piano lessons. So, I mean, to me, like, yeah, the mom is bland and maybe they could have given her more dimensions or just more active participation in the story rather than literally being locked in a cage. I'm with you there. And that performance is kind of whatever. But I'm going to 100 percent disagree with you on Hans Conried. I found him incredibly entertaining and like the best part of the movie. He is playing a live action cartoon because that is what this is. He's not playing a character who needs to have dimensions. He's a fantasy of what a kid thinks is a bad guy. He's having so much fun with it. It's it's the best thing in the whole movie. I just needed to believe that he believed something he was doing, and I didn't believe any of that. He believes in the in the power of the piano and the necess the necessity of the the Doctor Tewerlicker Institute or whatever, and the, <laughs> the five hundred little boys that he has to kidnap to play the piano. Did, did he not seem like he had conviction and all that? He was very a lot adamant. of conviction. Imagine you were put on the stand and they're like, why'd you kidnap those 500 boys? And he was like, for piano. I mean, it's ridiculous because it's supposed to be ridiculous. Like, this is. I'm going to lock up the lady so me and these 500 boys can run free in my secret lair playing piano. Yeah, there's a lot of Freudian subtext to this movie. <laughs> yeah. You know what this movie reminded me of is like, you know, when, when you're like, you're, you're, true detective season one like true detective season one <laughs> you know when you're like kind of like jokingly like talking down to a kid like like got your nose kind of thing like the, the whole movie is that it's like all just like kind of this kid is below all of the adults and they're all just kind of lording it over him just how much he's stuck in the situation and it's just it's so ridiculous and cartoonish i just loved all of that yeah. Well, I hear this, sport. I can't be your dad. I got to go do a thing now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I'm with you, Jason, on the, the those other adult characters, the mom and the plumber being... Mr. Zabladowski. Mr. Zabladowski. And, That's a great doctor. Scene. Right. He's always got great names. Dr. Terwilliker, all of this stuff. Yeah. Those are good names. Right? Yeah, totally. And uh, Bar Bartholomew Collins, who is maybe a little too similar to Bartholomew Cubbins from the however many hats of Bartholomew Cubbins, which is another Dr. Seuss book. But uh, yeah, I mean, I'm with you on the, the fact that those characters are kind of dull. And to me, that was why Dr. T stands out, why, why Hans Conried is so fun to watch in this movie, because he's, he's playing it up. He's having fun with it. Like that, that musical number where he gets dressed is the, so fun, is so good. Yeah. Yeah, I just, I'm not feeling any of that. I got to say another thing that let me down, Josh, was, you know, we have the imagination of Dr. Seuss, which is so 
uh, well realized on the page and so many things and in some of the other movies. But like this kind of lair that he has, this like secret hideaway is is really boring looking. It's just like a cave with a slide and then a, a cage underneath or something like that. It's totally boring uh, as a set. I mean, I think they probably don't have the money to fully recreate a Dr. Seuss thing. Again, this is why there wasn't another live action Dr. Seuss movie for so long, not just because of his disinterest, but because really creating a full Dr. Seuss world requires CGI and and just things that they didn't have at this time. So I think I don't think it does require CGI because the movie I keep thinking about of what what it should be at his best is Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, the the one from the 70s, yeah. right? And you have that amazing you have the amazing villain who has layers to him you have kids who have some depth to them you have some uh you have plenty of whimsy you have some kind of uh snap to it and then you have this you know incredible sets and set pieces that we still remember to this day well yeah that's a much better movie i don't disagree but i i think that the set design here there's a lot of fun creativity to it. The giant ladder that goes to nowhere, all the Susian, you know, arrows and fingers pointing, the the whole number with the other the other instruments, like you're talking about, that long dance number with the green screen people who are playing these crazy like instruments that get bigger and bigger and more elaborate. Like that's great design. Mm, maybe I just checked out by them, Josh. I, I love the piano, the the big rolling piano for all the 500 kids to play. Right. I mean, it's it's massive. And yeah, it has that kind of curve to it. And I mean, I agree there were some of the sets that did look a little sparse where you wonder if they ran out of resources or they just couldn't fully decorate everything properly. It's not as good as Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. But for that effort, like, again, this is for a movie where it's like there's potential that isn't fully realized, but it's sort of realized at times. And I think that that's the same thing with the design here. I think I've just become such a catty bitch, Josh, that um, I find like, you know, we watch so many movies now, even if you go on my letterbox, go for Jason. Uh, stuff that I might have used to give him like two and a half stars because like, hey, I like the effort. They're now getting one and a half stars because you know what? You don't like Fuck the you, effort. Josh. <laughs> Fuck me? Is this for me particularly? Well, I mean, I used you in the, in the, you know, uh, specific, but that was a generalization to fuck you uh, to all the Josh's out Oh, there. and mm. all the filmmakers. Um, I mean, <laughs> I am with you in that, like, I am very stingy with my ratings if you look at my letterbox or at reviews that I write. And I think that I can get jaded too, certainly. And I've seen a lot of movies just like you have. But I, I feel like I'd rather see a movie like this, which I feel like is, is has a lot of ambition that it doesn't quite succeed at than a movie that is just middle of the road and tolerable. Like this movie was, was interesting to watch. And I, I just don't think the ambition was there. I think it was cut out. Like, you know, like when I talk about the set, I don't feel like that was imagined really well. I feel like, you know, we cut nine musical numbers so that, that, and we both agreed the music was probably the best stuff here. Like, you know, and then you get like um, instead of that, you get a very lame fight scene between Zabladowski and, um, you know, put him up, put him up, put up your dukes, you know, and it just didn't work for me. Well, that's fun. They're like trying to he, hypnotize each other with weird mesmerizing <laughs> hand gestures. I mean, it's not just a they're not just punching each other or something. There's some 
creativity to that. I mean, I'm with you on the musical numbers. I, I don't know what they were like, but it's a shame that those have completely disappeared and that they're not there because they would have enhanced it. And certainly there are stretches of this where you're like, is this still a musical? When are we going to start singing again? And there could have been more of that. Yeah. And a few more Oompa Loompas. <laughs> I don't think that the Oompa Loompas <laughs> really fit here. I think that would have been a, a copyright infringement. I don't think that when when was Charlie and the Chocolate Factory written? I don't think it, it existed, <laughs> the book at this so, point yet. Look, so Josh, I think it's not good at all. You think it's all right and has this potential, but uh, Dave over here said he loved it. So what is it that you love, Dave? Well, the thing is, is like, it's, it's a hard conversation to have because a lot of the things that you think weren't there at all, Jason, I think were there. I think th there's a lot of imagination on display. I think that this is just like pure nonsensical vision. And I think that's kind of what you want out of Dr. Seuss. And I think it is all there on the screen and not everything works. And I agree with you guys, there should have been more music and uh, you know, it's, it's not perfect by a long shot, but I think that what is happening on screen is great. I think the villain is just so much fun. And, uh, you know, I, I, I just think it's such a ridiculous way to, uh, to craft a kid's movie essentially is to have that kid just be so deranged and the whole thing kind of from his point of view. I mean, that's one of those more, you know, for the adults kind of things. And I just really appreciated just how weird it is from that point of view. Yeah. And the kid is, he's, he's, I don't know. Troubled. Yeah. He's troubled. <laughs> yes, he's troubled. kind of a wet blanket, you know, in a lot of ways. Yeah. He's really, he's really, you know, messing with people's joy here, I think in some ways. Yeah. And as a musician, like I, you know, I should hate this kid because he hates music apparently, you know, but uh, I, I just think that's such a, a funny, weird, like entry point to this story. Yeah. And again, it's all from this sort of skewed perspective. Like I, I do love one other thing, like at the end, the climax is he creates this device that will absorb the sound so that the music can't be played. And the big threat is like, oh, is it atomic? And of course, like it's a word that you get the sense that the kid doesn't even know what that word means, except that it means something is dangerous. And so, yeah. but of course, everyone in his fantasy conceives of that word the same way. And even the, the adults are like, oh no, it's atomic. We better run away from it. So I, I don't know. I thought that was, there's kind of nuances to that from like the perspective of what kids think. I thought it was lame, that whole little uh, device to capture the sound. You didn't like how they, they created it with all the stuff in the kid's pocket? No. Where, where's, where's the reason in that, Josh? Where's the reason in that? The question you often want to ask Dr. Seuss. I, I said that on purpose, clearly. <laughs> yeah. I just, you know, I just, just uh, didn't work. For me. Yeah. I'm just saying, you know, none of it really worked all for right. me. So I, did you watch this with your daughter? No, Would, no, Josh. I saved her the pain and <laughs> suffering that you put me through. Does she like Dr. Seuss? Yeah, we all like Dr. Seuss, right? You know, uh, we've already mentioned that one, the uh, the Christmas, uh, that one that saves Christmas. But uh, the Grinch, you know, the Grinch, that Grinch <laughs> that guy, guy steals Christmas first, and then someone else saves it. Yeah, the Whoville kids, the, you Cindy know, Lou Who, right? Yeah, and one fish, red fish, blue fish. You're clearly a huge Dr. <laughs> Seuss fan. Yeah, you know, the, the places will go. You know, that's, yeah, was, that's a thing. So, so, but you've, yeah, so anyway. you've watched some of that stuff with your daughter. Yeah. And I think like the last Dr. Seuss animated Grinch was successful. Like, I'm not going to go, I mean, you know, like in the 2000s, you had all those missteps of like 
Mike Myers, Cat in the Hat, Jim Carrey, you know, Grinch. And uh, I wish we could get another really cool live action thing. But I think like, you know, what the writing was probably what made the difference in the uh, Ed Helms. Was it Ed Helms who was the Grinch in the last one? It was Benedict Cumberbatch, but that was close. <laughs> you know, <laughs> well, Josh, I just put them both in my pocket and then I put them in a device. And Ed Helms came out. Yeah. So. All right. Wasn't he in it? He, he Maybe he in was it in it. I don't know, but he wasn't the Grinch. And who was he? The Lorax? Was he a Lorax? No, I wasn't. Danny DeVito, the Lorax. I just also was want, he Horton? I just want to clarify that you're saying the difference between the what what made the movies that were written by Hollywood screenwriters better than the movie that was written by Dr. Seuss was the writing. Are you you're going to tell me that this was a better written film than the last? Uh, than the last uh, uh, Grinch. Who, it wasn't a worse um, written film. The Grinch who had Hanukkah. The Grinch who had Hanukkah. <laughs> I don't know what you want from me, Josh. I don't know. I time. don't know either. But I think we need to wrap up here because Ed Helms, Hanukkah. What is he was the Lorax? <laughs> Josh, we've now you're just, all over the place. We've today. now descended into Susian absurdity here on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, so. Pretty much, yeah. Should we should we rate this movie out of five nonsense Ed phrases? No, <laughs> five, five <laughs> not Susian. One of your little phrases that you uh, you had prepared there. Five Kuzagabals. There you go. Let's do that. How go. many would you rate? Yeah. It? Uh, one, one and a half. Wow. Kuzagabal. This is what one of your it? lowest ratings. Do you, do you hate this more than uh, I feel like? Two episodes ago, you said this was the worst movie that we'd ever covered. Oh, yeah. The Robe is still worse than this. Okay. You know, so. All right. I'm glad. But if we could combine them and maybe Dr. T was trying to keep Jesus as a prisoner in this land and uh, they had to get him out with whimsy, then then maybe we're onto something. We, that, I don't know. That sounds great. Let's make that happen. <laughs> so I'm going to give this three out of five. Limited buffs or whatever. Oh, that's ridiculous, Josh. It's fine. It's cute. It's fun. It's it's not it's not a full success, but it's a, it's worth checking out. Is my feeling. On Where's it. the Josh I know? So uh, yeah, I don't know. He's been kidnapped by Doctor Terwilliger, I guess. Um, <laughs> Dave, Dave is you're about to hate Dave more, right? Dave, how would you rate this? Four fliggity belums or whatever we're calling them. I'm going all the that's way. That's not up even to a four. real thing. You're writing out of something that's not even real, Dave. Let's get serious here. Yeah, you're I want right, to know, Dave. Right. Did this this struck me while I was watching it? Did did it affect your enjoyment of this film that Doctor T kind of looks like Michael Showalter? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> you have that a good 100%. point, Josh, and and that, and that's another reason to call bullshit on this guy, Dave, over here. That's not a reason to enjoy a movie just because he looks like a director who peaked five years ago. Oh, oh god, harsh words for so he's many directing things. all these women to to Oscars. What what are you talking about? Who's he directed to an Oscar? Jessica Chastain. Uh, Jessica Chastain and. Oh, yeah, she couldn't have done that on her own. It's only no. Jessica Chastain. All right, we'll come back in a moment and talk about the legacy of the 5,000 <laughs> Of Ed Helms of and Jessica <laughs> Dr. T. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1953, we are talking about the flop of the year, Dr. Seuss's The 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T. And uh, we, we've gone all into this Seussian realm of nonsense, but we're going to maybe get back to reality a little. I don't know. Talk about the legacy of this film. Um, as we've said, Dr. Seuss 
kind of disowned this movie and decided not to participate in in live action films again. So that was the yeah. immediate legacy for him right there. And you know what, Josh? It just makes me like him more. <laughs> yeah. He he and you and Dr. Seuss are in agreement on this film as being a debaculous, debaculous fiasco. Yeah, he's published <laughs> over 60 books. Spawned numerous adaptations, 11 television specials, five feature films, a Broadway musical, four television series. And uh, as we said, he was already a part of two Oscar winners. Yeah. I mean, obviously, Dr. Seuss doesn't need this movie for his legacy between those books and the, the TV specials that were beloved. I mean, like you said, we all grew up with the Grinch special, the Boris Karloff one and the songs in that. And a mixed track record with those feature films, I think, that that have been released since his death. Um, I think you liked that recent animated Grinch with Benedict Cumberbatch more than I did. But uh, did you ever see Seussical the musical? No, the stage production, which was also a flop, was it not? Did you see it? Nah, I didn't see it, but I would see it. That sounds fun. Yeah, so, I was thinking that this could be a stage <clears throat> musical. This is totally the kind of thing that, that could be reinvented and become a stage musical. Reinvented is the key word here, Joe. <laughs> I mean, um, all the songs, even including the ones that they didn't use in the movie, are just there and ready for people to use. I, d I mean, the whole premise is, I don't know, maybe it's just not one of his best premises. Do you have a favorite Dr. Seuss book? I mean, I haven't read an actual, I don't have a child, so I haven't read an actual Dr. Seuss book in, you know, 40 years or well, not quite that long, but 30 years at least. So I don't, I don't know. Uh, I don't have a favorite Dr. Seuss book probably because I think I did like the 500 hats of Bartholomew Cubbins or whatever when I was a child, but I, I don't remember. That might not have been how many hats he had. He had a lot of hats. 5,000 fingers. Josh. No, he had hats. <laughs> as Dr. T. No, that was Dr. Stick T. Stick on the yeah. subject, Josh. Yeah. Do you have a favorite uh, Dr. Seuss book? I always liked Hop on Pop. Mm. I thought that was a good one. And I remember in college, at the last day of my um, television writing course, our um, teacher read us, Oh, the Places You Will Go. Yeah. And apparently one of them for me was not to become a television writer of merit and success. You still got a chance. <laughs> you did become a, uh, a podcaster uh, talking mm. about failed Dr. Seuss movies. I really thought you were going to bring up my screenplay award from this summer because you love bringing that up, Josh. You do, too, because you just did. <laughs> nah, that was just me playing defense against you. All right. Dave, any favorites from Dr. Seuss? I, I haven't read any in forever. I, I will say I enjoyed the uh, Jim Carrey movie. Oh, God, that movie is so bad. It's bad, yeah. but but I had fun with it. Though. Dave, you're you're what are you doing with your life? <laughs> have you seen that Mike Myers Cat in the Hat movie, Jason? I have not. I've never no, seen we that. should watch it. We should for 1953. 1953 <laughs> that it came out. Yeah. Bonus episode. It's a good plan. Do you have a favorite Dr. Seuss movie or, or or TV special? Well, I mean, I mean, you know, it's got to be the the classic Grinch, and I did like that newer Grinch. I don't think I saw the Lorax or the Horton Hears a Who of the new ones. Yeah, did you? I saw the Lorax, which I think was okay. I didn't see the Horton Hears a Who movie. And uh, and that was it. I did watch all the Gerald McBoing Boing shorts, though, in advance of this, because there are four of them. Only only the first one was actually written by Dr. Seuss and the other ones were uh, trying to sort of emulate his style with mixed success. But the first one is, is fun and it's got a cool, like minimalist animation style that was kind of revolutionary uh, or different at the time. And it's a it's a fun little concept. So, you know, 
that that's something I actually watched recently that I can say was was enjoyable. You know, you could watch that with your daughter. It's seven minutes long. You could endure it. All right, I'll deal with that. I mean, dude, it's not like I don't want to watch more Doctor Seuss stuff. Right. I just don't like this one. Yeah. No, that's 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 fair. So Roy Roland, who, as we said, is the director here, was a it was a kind of a journeyman director who has a lot of credits, not a lot of super note. This might be his most notable film. Um, I happened recently to rewatch a film that he directed called Meet Me in Las Vegas, which is a a very fun musical set in Las Vegas that I've watched various times for articles related to movies about Las Vegas. And so that's the extent of my familiarity with him. That's from 1956 and uh, and is enjoyable, especially if you're a Vegas person, you want to see some vintage scenery from uh, from 1950s Las Vegas. But uh, other than that, he's, uh, you know, one of these guys who's kind of a workhorse, as we were talking about with the director of The Robe, but maybe didn't, uh, not an auteur in any way. Josh, did you know that John uh, M. Chu from Crazy Rich Asians and In the Heights is supposed to direct All the Places You Will Go for 2027? <laughs> for 2027? That's a long <laughs> way away. Well, you know, there it takes a while to get to those places. I guess it does. Uh, yeah, that could be a thing. I See, the other thing about these all these Seuss things is like, None of these books have enough material for a feature film. That was why it worked better when they were TV specials or seven minute short films. And uh, so I'm dubious about that. Yeah, you're right. And also, I don't I mean, look, we know he's a talented director, but In the Heights missed on a lot of like those kind of um, big adaptation moments. So I feel like I don't have the the highest hopes for this one. Yeah. Is it going to be a musical? I don't know. Okay. Because that seems like, I mean, I thought In the Heights was fine, um, but. Yeah, of course you did. (laughs) All right. Let's, let's, let's move on. Um, (laughs) Tommy Reddig, who is the, the child star here who plays Bart, was a successful child actor, retired as he got into his twenties and became a, a computer programmer in the nascent computer industry. So that was a smart move. On his part, he was in Lassie, though. He that was, was yes. Thing. That was his big thing is that he was in three seasons of Lassie as the kid. Because, of course, the kid is, I mean, new, how many kids have there been? You watch Lassie for Lassie, not for the kid, right? Yeah, it would be more impressive if he played Lassie, too. That would be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, no, that did not happen. And Josh, I gave Hans Conrad a, a bunch of crap, and he was the voice of Dr. Hook and George Darlin and Peter Pan. And Captain as Hook. Said, I think Dr. Hook is somebody else. Dr. Hook? Yeah. <laughs> is that what I said? Yes. Man, maybe I have gotten a little loopy there. So, uh, Snidely Whiplash and Dudley Do-Right. Yeah, and you can hear, I mean, he was a big voice actor in a lot of stuff, and you can hear how he would be great for those kinds of kind of dastardly roles and villains and that over-the-topness. And uh, he had kind of a sad quote, because he was also a character actor. He did a lot of TV guest appearances. You know, he was a working kind of B-level person. But this was his big chance to uh, have a big movie role. And he said, if it had been a success with my prominent part in the title role, it would have changed my life. But, you know, the implication being that, in fact, none of that (laughs) happened. And he had to go back to his previous career. Not that he was not successful, but he was doing fine. He was. But, you know, you can imagine that 
you get the, the the juicy part of the villain in the first movie that Dr. Seuss has written. Stanley Kramer is producing it. And you think this is going to be big for me, right? Yeah, I hear what you're saying, Josh. That, that makes sense. Uh, you know who did hit it big, Josh? Dr. Hook with the song, the cover of the Rolling Stone in 1972. Yeah. Thank you for that. Legacy. <laughs> uh the biggest, the biggest and coolest legacy of this movie is that Zabladowski and Heloise, like, what an amazing story. They were married in real life and they like basically worked together for 50 years, wrote books together and made a lot of movies and TV shows. Like they were a, a couple of working actors who seemed to only work together on stuff like and it worked. Yeah, they, that's pretty. That's pretty awesome. It's great. Yeah, they seem like they had a great career on stage and radio, all of that stuff, including in Las Vegas. They they both lived here in Las Vegas in their later years. They performed together at the Sands. Uh, they both showed up in uh, the Hal Ashby movie, Looking to Get Out, which is a, a not great Vegas movie from 1982. Peter Lindhayes guest starred on uh, Vegas, the, the 70s TV series. And uh, Mary Healy is in the Nevada Entertainment Artist Hall of Fame at UNLV. So I had no idea about that Vegas connection. That was cool to check out. I just I, I agree. But more than that, just the fact that they were able to um, just kind of build a career together for so long. That's amazing. They were also substitute hosts on The Tonight Show between Jack Parr's departure and Johnny Carson's arrival in 1962. That's amazing. Pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. I feel like maybe they were a bigger deal than that, that we than we know them as now. And maybe because a lot of that was on stage and on the radio and stuff that hasn't been preserved. But yeah, it's not. Like you said, I mean, I was in agreement with you that they're not the highlight of this film, that they're a bit bland and and the chem you wouldn't really even guess that they were married because they don't have much chemistry in this movie. Well, they don't really get a chance to show much together either. Yeah, that's yeah. true. But I, I think there's probably some sort of energy and spark that they had performing that doesn't really come across here, unfortunately. So I do we want to talk about Dr. Seuss's racism? Uh, I don't even know what that, I really don't even, you can talk about it, but it, it will all be news to me. Okay. We don't I have really to don't talk know about what we're it, but, um, I mean, there, there has been a slight reassessment of some of Dr. Seuss's work. I mean, it became a, a big sort of lame right-wing cause. Uh, I don't know. It was a year or two ago, maybe more than that. When the, the company that oversees the publication of Dr. Seuss's works, you know, his actual estate. They decided to take six of his books out of circulation because they include racial caricature depictions of Asian characters in, in certain illustrations. Um, and there's aspects of that in some of these books where he uses stereotypes um, that were probably very prevalent at the time, but that don't look so good now in terms of the, the way that Asians are depicted with yellow face and things like that. Um, so, but of course, the idea that Dr. Seuss was censored, Dr. Seuss was canceled, which was not true. And many, many, many of his books are still readily available. Even the ones that were taken out of print, there were so many copies still available. You can buy them easily. Right. But, uh, and it was in fact his own estate that did it. Um, but, but there was an element of that. And I think some people are concerned. More racist than that, though, were his political cartoons during World War II, where he was a strong advocate for the internment of the Japanese in uh, internment camps. So that's not good. No, not good at all. But no racism in this movie, thankfully. Yeah. 
though. That's a plus. Except against um, piano players, cartoon villains, maybe. No, I got nothing. <laughs> yeah, no, no. This is wholesome, and I think it's fun. It's it's worth seeing. So I don't know anything else on the legacy of this film you want to talk about, Jason. Josh, uh, did you? I, I don't even know these books. I'm looking up the ones that were taken out of uh, circulation, and to think that I saw it on Mulberry Street. If if I, I guess I know yeah. if I ran the zoo. Oh, the Mulberry Street one, I think I remember. But yeah, you're right. I know these books. But I mean, they were definitely minor compared to. It wasn't the Cat in the Hat and Green Eggs and Ham that was taken out of circulation. It was books that that are less well known. Um, and again, you can ease, I guarantee you can buy all those books on eBay, like right now for $10 or whatever. It's not hard. Mm. Oh dear. Yeah. <laughs> That's Dr. Sue. <laughs> so no, Josh, I think, uh, we covered it from all angles. My angle being that, uh, it was just, uh, a debaculous fiasco. Your angle for saying, yeah, it was just the thing. And Dave's angle which neither of us understand. No, I mean, I can I can understand. I feel like I can understand both perspectives. I feel like this is a movie that I can see how you would be taken with its ideas, even if they're not fully formed and just be on its wavelength. And I can see how you would think like, no, this is a mess and it doesn't work. So I'm, uh, I'm trying to be the neutral middle party here. I mean, it's like you said about that 1200 page script. They say it had themes of world dominance and oppression coming out of World War II. That is what this children's movie was missing for me. <laughs> but would not it have been fascinating to see what kind of total, like, bonkers nonsense that he could have come up with if they just gave him full creative control? Yeah, let's go for it. That would have been cool. Yeah, yes. but we'll never see that. So that is The 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T, and that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can flip a lobble up us online. I can't do the nonsense words online no. and uh, on the social media. Sure, you can. I've already mentioned my letterbox. Go for Jason. Uh, that's also my website, which is uh, somewhere in the caves of Dr. T's piano hideaway of evil. Just don't go to the website yet. I'm still fixing it. Uh, but you can check me out on all the socials at Jason Harris Comedy or Jay Harris comedy. Of course, we have Eat This Comedy. We have the Trivia Party, all the things. And uh, don't forget us at Awesome Movie Year. Uh, awesome Movie Year on Facebook, Instagram, Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, awesomemovieyear.com. And check out our podcast, Awesome Movie Year. Yes, listen to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. <laughs> wherever you listen to Awesome Movie Year, listen to Awesome Movie Year. Mm -hmm. So much Susian nonsense here. You can uh, you can find me at joshbellhateseverything.com, at joshbellhateseverything on Facebook, at SignalBleed on Twitter, and at SignalBleed on Letterboxd. And you can listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at PiecingPod. And Jason, what movie do we have coming up that hopefully you won't hate? <laughs> Josh, we are going back to our friends at Cannes. As you know, they sponsor this episode every year. Mm -hmm. Every season we do on a Palme d'Or winner. In 1953, there's a classic film called The Wages of Fear. So tune in next time for The Wages of Fear. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. 
make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.